Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. John Harvin here with you. Our quote for the day from uh, Malcolm X. If you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, there's no progress. And if you pull it out all the way, that's not progress. Progress is healing the wound that the blow made. And they haven't even pulled the knife out, much less healed the wound. They won't even admit the knife is in there. On the line with us is Cornell William Brooks, professor of the practice of public leadership and social justice at Harvard's Kennedy School, former president and CEO of the NAACP, and civil rights attorney and a fourth generation ordained minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Professor Brooks, welcome to the program. It's good to be with you. How are you? I am great. Thanks so much for joining us today. There's been this proposed legislation in the House, House Resolution 40, as I recall, to put together a commission to examine what reparations would look like, how they should happen, if they should happen, all this kind of stuff. And the Republicans are fighting this. You got Mitch McConnell saying, oh, there's no need for this. That was a long time ago, et cetera, et cetera. What say you to those largely white Republicans who are saying this? I would simply say that this is a conversation that is 150 plus years overdue in the midst of one of the most racially divided and balkanized moments in American history, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, with her colleagues, convenes a hearing on reparations, and specifically a hearing on whether or not to create a commission to start a national conversation about reparations. This is long overdue. When we think about the fact that not slavery from a century and a half ago, but the vestiges of slavery that continue into the present moment, this conversation is both morally urgent, it is timely as a matter of policy and as a matter of politics. And so what I would simply say to Republican members of the Senate and of the House, this is a conversation that can't be aborted. When we spend more time talking about Confederate statues that were erected long after the Civil War to romanticize the past that never existed and ignore the reality of a history that we yet live with, this reparation conversation must happen, and it needs to happen now. And this represents such a wonderful opportunity, a rich opportunity for America to really come to grips with, it, with its past in the present. Uh, it would be different 
if slavery was not perpetuated into this present moment. It would be different if the voter suppression that Mitch McConnell supports turns a blind eye to and actually endorses. It would be different if that voter suppression wasn't literally a post-Reconstruction creation. In other words, slavery gave birth to the original forms of voter suppression, voter dilution, voter intimidation. That continues in this present 2019 moment. So the, the conversation is, is long overdue, and I, I would simply ask Leader McConnell, what exactly are you afraid of? The facts, the history, the moral and economic case for reparations, or even the occasion for having this conversation? In other words, think about this. America frequently exalts itself as a city on a hill. We talked to other countries about human rights. We went into the Balkans and tried to bring an end to ethnic genocide. We have talked about the Hutus and the Tutsis. We've talked about all manner of ethnic divisions and racial divisions around the world and tried to bring about peace and justice. Here we are in 2019 at home trying to duck a conversation we should have had a long time ago. Yeah. If I'm remembering the numbers correctly, the median income for whites in the United States is around 170 k That includes a lot of white billionaires, but still, it's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And the median income for African Americans in the United States is around 17 k It seems like a 10 to 1 ratio, roughly. And my recollection on household wealth, but this is a few years old, this number, was mm -hmm. that the average white household had around eighty, eighty-five thousand dollars $85,000 in wealth, mostly in the form of their home. The average black household nationwide had around $5,000 worth of wealth. And in many of the southern states, it was actually a negative number. If those numbers don't comport with more recent numbers that you know of, please correct me. But given this roughly 10 to 1 wealth and income disparity, how do we address that head on? Mm, mm. Well, I think it's important when we talk about the income disparities and the wealth disparities to talk about the genesis of this and the origins of this, lest our readers and listeners walk away with the impression that somehow uh, African Americans are less thrifty, less committed to saving and investing and being wise stewards. Or less uh, capable with of working. Resources. In fact, some years ago, I believe it was Lee Atwater, it might have been, in fact, I think it was when Atwater and Manafort were working together, he made the comment, or it might have been a different Republican consultant, we'll have to look it up, but I'm pretty sure it was Atwater, made the comment that the Republicans had to turn the Democratic Party into the, quote, black party. Mm -hmm. And it seems like McConnell refusing to even discuss this is, is the subtext to that is, well, we're the Republicans, we're the white party. We're not the party of that special interest group, that minority group over there. Right. Um, and I think all That's this right. kind of ties together. It absolutely ties together, because what's suggested here is that somehow uh, reparations is essentially a grandiose welfare program. Right. So if we go back to the history, go to the facts, go to the statistics, here's what we know. So the wealth gap between African-Americans and white Americans and income a gap between white Americans and African Americans is related to the fact that you had millions, four million Africans, African Americans coming out of, of slavery with nothing. And if that weren't bad enough, that their bodies and brilliance were literally commodified for the better part of 300 years, the land that African Americans were able to acquire 
the income that they were able to generate was systematically, with the aiding and abetting of the federal government, taken away from them. So, literally say black bodies. So the convict leasing system where Southern legislatures literally looked at what offenses can we turn into crimes, what behaviors can we turn into crimes, convict black people, and then having convicted them, send them to prison, and then literally lease their bodies out to be worked to death, right? So this was a system of basically peonage. This was a system for literally working black men predominantly to death by turning them into basically slaves through the criminal justice system. That continued from after slavery up through World War I. Yeah, well, it also uh, continues to this day. I mean, the, the one exception to slavery in the 13th Amendment is if you've been convicted of a crime. And yep. if we have for-profit prisons all over the country now, disproportionately with minority populations, that are work camps. That is precisely it. So the official end of the convict leasing system occurred years ago in terms of an executive order. But in terms of the system of mass incarceration, where we're literally able to lease out and rent out uh, black and brown bodies from behind bars continues to the present day. So that's just one form of essentially income and wealth theft in terms of housing. So if we look at the HUD that Ben Carson leads today, if you look at its HUD and its institutional predecessors, the federal government going back to the 30s and before sanctioned, supported, uh, as a matter of official policy, segregation. So in other words, devaluing black homes, devaluing black neighborhoods, stripping away wealth in a systematic fashion and form. In other words, there were maps of cities that were literally divided up, blacks, Poles, Jews, Italians, in ways that literally diminish and decrease black wealth. So it's not merely bodies, not merely housing, but also income. So where we had policies of separate but equal, so we had Jim Crow, we had separate but equal up into, as official doctrine and policy of the country up until the Brown decision, literally black people were relegated to the least paying jobs, racially coded and designated jobs in ways that suppress wealth and suppress income. But it goes even further. Look at land theft. Across the South, black communities and black, communi- and black individuals literally had their land stolen from them at the point of guns, um, through legal chicanery, through all manner of strategies to keep black people wealth. And lest the point, keep black people poor, lest the point be missed, if we look at Tulsa, if we look at Memphis, if we look at Wilmington, North Carolina, where at the point of guns, and mobs, literally black businesses were burned, land was stolen, and literally communities were made poor. And so this is not a matter of long ago history. This is not a matter of merely the ugly epic of slavery. This is a matter of an ongoing policy to keep certain Americans, African-Americans in particular, poor, landless, and not in control of their very bodies. 
I saw a report just a couple days ago that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, this thing that Elizabeth Warren created, had been basically crippled by the Trump administration. And as a consequence of this, these reverse mortgages were being aggressively marketed to older African-American families. And the default rate was an order of magnitude greater than it was for white families. And the article characterized it as saying, you know, these were, quote, unsophisticated home buyers, which A, might be just racist code, or B, if it's literally the first time or the first generation to own a home, they may not have the familiarity with that. And in fact, I think that multi-generational familiarity with things like how to deal with equity is something that white people have is an advantage right out of the gate over many black people over the years, I mean, going back to the end of slavery. So I'm curious your thoughts on all of that and if that's just another symptom of this kind of ongoing redlining by another name. Absolutely. And I would even call into question the assumption that people who are, quote, unsophisticated merit being fiscally and financially preyed upon. So in other words, when you go to a doctor because you don't have a degree or background in surgery, it does not mean that you're a candidate for a botched job or a misdiagnosis. Or unnecessary and, surgery just to make the guy some money. <laughs> right. And so, in fact, the nomenclature, I was a fair housing, fair lending attorney at the U.S. Department of Justice. So I prosecuted these kinds of cases. And the nomenclature for the financial industry is we will determine if you're qualified for a loan, right? So in other words, it is the person who makes the loan, it is the person who extends the credit, who determines whether or not you're qualified. That implies that you're going to do the work ethically, honestly. And there is no exemption now to criminal law or civil law for you preying upon people who are unsophisticated. In other words, you don't get to perpetuate a fraud simply because someone is unsophisticated. There's no loophole for that. Right. In either the Constitution or the matter of regulation or a statute. Yeah, although it seems to be a common business practice, <laughs> regardless of race. It is but. A common, but I'll put it this way. When I was an attorney at the Justice Department, if you said to me, well, you know what, this person, this landlord violated the Fair Housing Act and the tenant or the home borrower was unsophisticated, I would say that's irrelevant. Right. Or if anything, they are deserving of more protection. That's one of the reasons why we have agencies that protect us from predatory corporations, it seems. Very frequently when we talk about race on this program, you get some white guy from the South calling in and saying, yeah, look at all these cities that are filled with black people and they're all run by black people and they're all in poverty and it's a terrible thing and they just don't know what they're doing. And you get the whole racist subtext to all this. Help me out in responding to that. Without going into a long history lesson, of, you know, of course, this is the result of 400 years of process. Or is that the appropriate response? I think the appropriate response to stereotyping, myth-making, and scapegoating are Just to call it out. and reason and, and morality. Yeah. So, in other words, when someone engages in scapegoating and myth-making and stereotyping, as just a polite way of calling black communities the N-word in a nice way, yeah. you got to call it out. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is, I like to point people b- back to record. Right? So in other words, when we talk about the presumed criminality of cities, look at the facts. 
in other words, when we look at the ways in which, as a matter of essentially government policy, people have been preyed upon in terms of housing discrimination, in terms of graft and corruption. Crime in cities is not a new thing. The Italians were accused of it. The, uh, the, the Irish, uh, yeah. Spanish, the Irish. Uh, you pick the group. Any history of immigration in this country is a history of one group being called out by another group for being less than the dominant group. And those are the facts. The other part of it is, there's something called the uh, geography of crime, which essentially says in any poor space, the crime rate goes up no matter who's in it. Makes perfect sense. Professor Reverend Cornell William Brooks, the professor of practice in public leadership and, and social justice at Harvard's Kennedy School. Thank you so much for dropping by today and talking with us. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Very, very useful and informative conversation. There's a fellow who lived in Detroit, his name is Senator Thomas, and his employer, and we don't know the details of what happened because the lawsuit was settled, he was given a settlement check, a payment, and part of it was a provision in the, in the settlement agreement that he wouldn't talk about it in public, it, you know, a confidentiality agreement. But he was employed by Enterprise Leasing in Detroit, you know, they lease trucks and stuff like that. And he brought a workplace racial discrimination lawsuit. And they lost. They went to court and they lost. And they had to pay him. And they wrote him a, a fairly large check. And we don't know how much the check is because, again, that was covered by the confidentiality clause. So he had been banking at TCF Bank in Livonia, Michigan. I used to, my, my oldest child was born at St. Mary's Hospital in Livonia. Louise and I used to live down the road in Westland, which are both suburbs of Detroit. Uh, Livonia is a little more upscale. Westland's a little more downscale, but in any case, he takes this uh, settlement check from his lawsuit for racial discrimination into this bank, and the bank manager says to him, hang on, just stay right there, I need to verify this check, because it's a large check. And she goes in the back room and calls police. And four cops arrive, and two are waiting outside and they question this guy, and he says, no, it's a settlement check. Here's my lawyer's phone number. You can call my lawyer. They call his lawyer. She says, yes, it's a settlement check. And the manager of the bank still says, no, we're going to file a police report for check fraud, and we will not deposit this check in your account that you've had with this bank for two years. Welcome to America. He is now, by the way, suing the bank. <laughs> And hopefully he'll get a good-sized settlement because this is just absolutely unacceptable behavior. And the bank issued a statement saying, wow, we just did what we would do with anybody who brought in a large check. We're sorry we inconvenienced him. That was their official statement. Words to that effect. I mean, it's not verbatim, but very close. But he went down the street to another bank and said, hey, this is my check. I am me, here's my ID, would you like me to open a checking account here? And if so, will you deposit this? And the other bank said, sure, in a heartbeat. Yeah, so much for TFC or TCF Bank, whatever it is there in Livonia. And this is a news story actually from earlier last year, from a few months ago, 
and it's looking at 2016, 2017, and early 2018. The numbers are not in yet for the end of the year 2018, and we probably won't get them for another few months. Probably it'll be around March that we start seeing hate crime numbers. But this is truly breathtaking. This is a study that was done by a professor of political science, Regina Branton, at the University of North Texas, and an assistant professor of political science at Texas A&M University, Al Feinberg, and a professor of political science and director of the Latina and Mexican-American Studies at the University of North Texas, Valerie Martinez-Ebers. And these three universities and these three professors got together, and they did this study of the rise of hate crimes during 2016-2017. And what they found was shocking. What they found was, you know, there, there, yeah, there was an overall rise in hate crimes, 2017 over 2016, and the rise was 17% nationwide. But what is truly amazing is that in the year 2016, Donald Trump did 275 presidential campaign rallies. And what they found was that in the counties where Donald Trump did a campaign rally, hate crime went up their language. Trump's 275 presidential campaign rallies in 2016 and increased incidents of hate crimes in subsequent months. So they went up. We found that counties that had hosted, this is from their study, we found that counties that had hosted a 2016 Trump campaign rally saw a 226% increase in reported hate crimes over comparable counties that did not host such a rally. And they note that it's probably the numbers are probably even worse. They say it's far more likely that hate crime statistics are considerably lower because of underreporting. And how do they know that it's a Trump effect? Well, in many cases, they say a considerable number of these reported hate crimes specifically reference Donald Trump. Remember the guy who sent all the pipe bombs to Democrats all over the country, including the president and vice president? He had Trump bumper stickers all over, you know, and Trump memorabilia all over his van. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present by Harriet A. Washington. This is from the introduction. On a sylvan stretch of New York's patrician Upper Fifth Avenue, just across from the New York Academy of Medicine, a colossus in marble august inscriptions and a bas-relief cadacious grace, a memorial bordering Central Park. These laurels venerate the surgeon James Marion Sims, MD, as a selfless benefactor of women. Nor is this the only statuary erected in honor of Dr. Sims. Marble monuments to his skill, benevolence, and humanity guard his native South Carolina State House, its medical school, the Alabama Capitol grounds, and a French hospital. In the mid-19th century, Dr. Sims dedicated his career to the care and cure of women's disorders and opened the nation's first hospital for women in New York City. He attended French royalty, his Grecian visage inspired oil portraits, and in 1875 he was elected president of the American Medical Association. Hospitals still bear his name, including a West African hospital that utilizes the eponymous gynecological instruments that he at first invented for surgeries upon black female slaves in the 1840s. But this benevolent image vies with the detached Marion Sims portrayed in Robert Tom's J. Marion Sims Gynecological Surgeon, an oil representation of an experimental surgery upon his powerless slave, Betsy. 
Sims stands aloof, arms folded, one hand holding a metroscope, the forerunner of the speculum, as he regards the kneeling woman in a coolly evaluative medical gaze. His tie and morning coat contrast with her simple servant's dress, head rag, and bare feet. The painting, commissioned and distributed by the Park Davis Pharmaceutical House more than a century after the surgeries, as one of its History and Medicine in Pictures series, takes telling liberties with the historical facts. Tom portrays Betsy as a fully clothed, calm slave woman who kneels complacently on a small table, hand modestly raised to her breast before a trio of white male physicians. Two other slave women peer around a sheet, apparently hung for modesty's sake, in a childlike display of curiosity. This innocuous tableau could hardly differ more from the gruesome reality in which each surgical scene was a violent struggle between the slaves and physicians, and each woman's body was a bloodied battleground. Each naked, unanesthetized slave woman had to be forcibly restrained by the other physicians through her shrieks of agony as Sims determinedly sliced, then sutured her genitalia. The other doctors who could fled when they could bear the horrific screams no longer. It then fell to the women to restrain one another. I wanted to reproduce Tom's painting on the cover of this book, or at least in the text, but when I asked permission of its copyright holder, Pfizer Incorporated, the company insisted on reviewing the entire manuscript of this book before making a decision. As an independent scholar, I could not acquiesce to this, and I used another cover image. When I renewed my request to use the image within the text, Pfizer agreed to base its decision upon reading this chapter and an outline of the book. The Pfizer executives apparently were uncomfortable with what they read because they refused to grant permission to reproduce this telling image or even respond to my query after I supplied the requested chapter and outline. This act of censorship exemplifies the barriers some choose to erect in order to veil the history of unconscionable medical research with blacks. Betsy's voice has been silenced by history, but as one reads Sims' biographers and his own memoirs, a haughty, self-absorbed researcher emerges, a man who bought black women slaves and addicted them to morphine in order to perform dozens of exquisitely painful, distressingly intimate vaginal surgeries. Not until he had experimented with his surgeries on Betsy and her fellow slaves for years did Sims' essay to cure white women. Was Sims a savior? or a sadist. It depends, I suppose, on the color of the women you ask. Marion Sims epitomizes the two faces, one benign, one malevolent, of American medical research. Quote, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in health is the most shocking and the most inhumane. In 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. spoke those words in Montgomery, Alabama, at the end of the Selma to Montgomery march that had been attended by the black and white physicians of the Medical Committee for Human Rights. King had invited the doctors not only to give medical help to injured marchers, but also to witness the abuse suffered at the hands of segregationists. With these almost unnoticed words, King ushered in a new era in civil rights because, as delegate to Congress Donna Christensen Christian, MD chair of the Congressional Black Caucus Health Brain Trust, has declared, health disparities are the civil rights issue of the 21st century. Thus, Dr. King's alarm over racial health injustice was prescient. And were he alive today, his concerns would be redoubled. Mounting evidence of the racial health divide confronts us everywhere we look, from doubled black infant death rates to African-American life expectancies that fall years behind whites. 
Infant mortality of African Americans is twice that of whites, and black babies born in more racially segregated cities have higher rates of mortality. The book, Medical Apartheid by Harriet A. Washington. Paul in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Paul, you're on the air. I wanted to talk about the reparations issue. Unfortunately, the, the Reverend isn't on there, but I'll, I'll get right to the main topic that I wanted to say. The nation of Haiti was a French colony. It was a slave colony, and they had a revolution, after which the French nation demanded reparations <laughs> for the loss of property and economic production. And Haiti paid those reparations for 150 years, as I recall. And there you go. And up until 1947, I mean, here you have yeah. France. From 1802 or something? 1947. No, but they, I mean, it started, they, the, the Haitian Revolution was in the first decade of the 1800s, wasn't oh, right, right. it? During yeah, Jefferson's like presidency? 18, yeah, 18, or like 1815, right around the oh, Napoleonic okay. era. Yeah, and it, okay. was, it was enforced by a naval blockade. They put a gun to their heads. They had to pay, and they had to pay in gold. Right. So, the other thing is, and this is what I wanted to mention to the Reverend, in any discussion about reparations for slavery, it's a global issue, not just for African Americans, because American banks received much of the gold from Haiti that went to New Orleans. Many of the French slave owners escaped with their skins, with their lives. And the reason why the port of New Orleans was as wealthy and, and successful as it is, and if you look at it, you wonder, like, how does it even exist? It exi one of the reasons it existed was a huge infusion of capital, of gold, by the French, uh, uh, the white Frenchman who left and got a huge amount of reparations from Haiti. Wow. Uh, the, there's money in America from Haitian reparations to Frenchmen. I mean, it is. It, it's, it's staggering. And uh, the president of France, Hollande, he actually went to Haiti, I think, in, uh, about four or five years ago, first one to do it. And the only thing he offered was uh, to pay the moral debt. I mean, even, even the French don't want to open up their wallet for actual monetary reparations. So right. uh, it, it's going to be a tough road to hoe for, the, for the, the reverend, but I think there's linkage there with many people in the United States uh, that would be more than happy to join up because there's, there's grievances across the board. And I think, uh, you know, you as well as many people know the problem of capitalism. Uh, it's exploitation, and it comes in many different forms. Many people have been basically uh, had their wealth confiscated from them. And, he, and more recently, I worked for HUD, uh, and this is real quick again, I'll get to the point. People lost their homes in Philadelphia during what was called deindustrialization, black and white. Those homes wound up into the hands of HUD, Housing and Urban Development, because of foreclosures that were backed by the FHA and the VA and, and regular banks. Right. There were quick to your point, Paul, real quick. homes in Philadelphia that were confiscated by banks. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Ben in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Ben, what's on your mind today? Okay, Native Americans should be first and African Americans second. Well, I think they, they should come along at the same time. If you, sure, slaves sure. were imported into this, people in, and slave people were brought to this country within 10 years 
of the founding of Jamestown in 1607. And the first slaver was Christopher Columbus. He exported slaves back to Spain. And he was also the first person to engage in genocide of Native Americans. He wiped out the Taino people in Haiti and uh, in Hispanolia, you know, Haiti and Dominican Republic over the course of about a 15 or 20 year period. So, yeah. yeah, I'm aware of that. I just don't want Native Americans to be forgotten. Yeah, I agree with you. In fact, the Holocaust against Native Americans, the genocide against Native Americans was extraordinary. I mean, it was literally the most effective one in the history of the world. Well, I would say that's even worse than the Holocaust. I don't think the comparison is, is useful. There's nuance in both of them, frankly, and, and uh, you know, you get people who say, well, you know, a lot of the Native Americans died from disease. Yeah, but that disease wouldn't have spread across the country if white people weren't spreading across the country using guns as a way to do it, for example. So, yeah, there's, there's exactly. a bunch of issues there. Okay, thanks a lot, Ben, for the call. I, I get your point, and I'm with you. Uh, Ron in Buffalo, New York. Hey, Ron, what's up? In my heart of hearts, I realize there should be some type of reparations for African Americans. I mean, you know, we can go through the scenarios of preaching to the choir here, but are you worried? I'm very worried because it's all over the right-wing blogs, and they're now referring to it on Fox and other another giveaway for minorities, forgetting about white people and all this. Yeah. Kind of stuff. At this point, isn't this playing into their hands? I think that. At a certain level, it's not so much that it's playing into their hands. This is a conversation, as, as, the, as the professor said, that's 150 years too late. But you're absolutely right that the Republican Party, I mean, going back to Richard, Richard Nixon's Southern strategy, Lee Atwater's plan to blackify the Democratic Party and whiten the Republican Party, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and certainly during the Reagan administration, the extent to which Republicans can shout out to their white base, oh, those black people just want to take some money from you. Yeah, absolutely. This is something that they will use. But frankly, Ron, they would have used it whether there were hearings or not. I mean, that just scares me that if you try to tell a you know, a white person that's lost his job, and it gets, it gets to these whose cross is bigger to bear kind of arguments. No, I get and, it. And that, that scares me. I just don't know. It, it, it's not wrong to do it, but it's politically, I just think it's kind of dangerous. It, I think arguably it would have been better to do it after the election, but frankly, justice delayed is justice denied. I mean, there, there's a certain point at which you say, we're going to do what's right regardless of the political considerations. Ron, thank you for the call. I, get, I absolutely understand what you're saying. Clifford in Los Angeles. Hey, Clifford, what's up? Hi, Tom. I talked to you about a month ago. I'm 72 years old. I'm black. I'm a Vietnam era veteran, and I'm an independent voter. Okay. I can vote Republican and I can vote Democrat. But, Tom, you're going to disagree with what I say, but Democrats have just handed the House and the Senate to the Republicans. Because America is, is just changed. They don't care what this guy does in the White House. They know he lies. They know he's a coward. They know he's a traitor. They know he's a rapist, but they don't care. And the Democrats have the wrong person running for the president. None of, none of these presidential hopefuls are purposeful for the country. Clifford, if you're none right, and you may be right, if you're right, it means that our democracy is toast. Look at his rallies. He has 20,000 people at his rallies and, and four or 5,000 outside. You can't dispute that. Right. He sits up and lies every... A month ago, a woman came on TV and said, Trump raped her. Nobody cared. 
Nobody yeah. the country. That was a one day care, story. But, yeah. She wrote a book yeah, about it, in fact. Uh, yeah. The economy's Obama's and everybody knows every sane American knows it. The economy's Obama gave them a, a, a great economy. Yeah. And the Republicans should have every did the Democrats every day, the Democrats should have a spokesman tell them that they passed over twenty bills. The Democratic Party has passed over twenty bills in the House. Two hundred and sixty bill, uh, Clifford. Yeah. Two hundred and sixty yeah, bills. Yeah, but the country doesn't know it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Say, but it's not like the Democrats aren't saying this. They're saying it all the time. It's just that the media doesn't pick it up because the media is so focused on Trump. And that's, I, in my opinion, that's how if they hand him the election again, this, it's going to be the media just like it was last time. Tim in Seattle. Hey, Tim, what's up? I got so furious listening to that caller saying that Trump's going to win and he's got 20,000 people at his rallies. And I, you know, I know he means well, but he is so wrong. We have how many thousands at the Women's March? Hillary had three million more than Trump. I looked at a statistic. It said as of July 2016, 36.3 million people identify themselves as Mexicans that live in this country. I mean, all the people that supported Obama. I think the numbers way outweigh this, the rednecks and the racists that are going to vote for Trump. In a decade or so, that's absolutely going to be the case, Tim. I mean, we're seeing the browning of America, and, and it's, I think it's a good thing. We're adding diversity, and, and you know, old white guys like me are you know, kind of waking up to the reality of a multiracial society and realizing that that's a good thing, even when the old memes that were built into us by exposure to media throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, when when people of color were portrayed in very negative ways, keep popping up in our heads. What makes a more enlightened person is to say, oh, yeah, that thought came into my head. Oh, my God, step on that one. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but, I agree. Whereas, you know, with the Trump followers, that thought pops into their head and they go, oh, that's reality. It's a big difference. I know you're great about this, but everybody listening, help somebody get to the voting polls. Drive an old person that lives in your building. Make sure Aunt Peggy is registered. Just go crazy. Yeah. Get involved. You know, another great way to get involved besides your show and the, and the things that you link, call, contact your local Teamster offices, say, can I do phone banking? Can I stuff envelopes? I mean, these people are involved in progressive movements. Right. Yep. Amen. Tim, thank you very much for the call. Sure, thank you. Thanks. Joe in Pittsburgh. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Nice to talk to you again. Hey, uh, you. here's a question for you, and I want your thoughts on this. I was looking at Democratic Underground. And there was, a, there was a part on there with Laura Ingram and uh, John Hugh and another individual. And they were basically smearing uh, Colonel Vidman. Yeah, John Hugh has walked that back, by the way, since then. But continue. Okay. Well, my problem with that on there is that they, these guys don't understand that words do have consequences. When are we going to be able to say that, you know, you, you know, you can't keep doing this kind of stuff, promoting all this stuff that, that is, you know, wrong or untrue? and then the guy gets killed. Yeah. If you look at the history of this kind of demagoguery, this kind of, of uh, pseudo right-wing populism, this kind of strongman right-wing populism, if you look at the history of how that played out in the Philippines with Duterte, in Egypt with Erdogan, in Egypt with al-Sisi, in Hungary with Orban, in Poland with Duda, in, uh, in Brazil with Jair Bolsonaro, if you, if you look at how that has played out in country after country, it does lead to people being killed. It's led to over 10,000 people being killed that were documented in the Philippines that, that uh, you know, uh, the, the president was taking credit for. So 
you know that that is the that's the the scary endpoint scenario, and and you know now we've seen people killed in the United States. You had this guy who traveled what 600 miles down to El Paso to kill, kill people of Hispanic origin, and he was quoting Donald Trump. You had a guy shooting up a synagogue, you know, killing Jews. He was quoting Donald Trump or citing Trump's Trump's memes. These things do have consequences, and Trump's, in my opinion, Trump's behavior and his actions and his embrace of the hard right have already killed people in America. And, and frankly, I fear that they're going to kill more. It's a sad state of affairs. It really is. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. We'll be back in just a moment with more of your calls here on the Tom Hartman program, the place where despair is not an option. Rob in Boonesville, Missouri. Hey, Rob, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching Free Speech. I was listening to you ask earlier about whether racism was always present in the culture of the United States, and I would have to definitely agree, yes. I think the only real difference between the Republican Nixon through Reagan era was that it was always expressed through the dog whistle. And now Trump is making it more like a a dog bark. Right. Or bite. (laughs) Or or bite, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, but th- I, there's a bigger I, issue, though, to that, Rob, and that is that the whole point of a dog whistle is that only some people can hear it, right? You use a dog whistle and only dogs can hear it. Uh, humans can't hear it. So the right. point of the dog whistle is that you say something that is racially coded, but only racists understand what you're saying. What Trump is doing now is saying it out loud, which means that people who might not be inclined to be racist, and I'm particularly thinking of young people, young white people in the United States, people who might not be inclined to be racist or who might even be inclined to be a little more expansive and progressive in their worldview are now being openly, nakedly indoctrinated by this. And so, oh, definitely. And so, there's a real danger beyond. It's not just that Trump is reaching out to the racists. The Republicans have been doing that since Nixon. He's also reaching beyond the racists, and he's converting people to racism. Absolutely, absolutely, and that is definitely a problem. And I'm not really sure how that can be undone. Well, I think, you know, the, 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 the very vigorous pushback that we're seeing right now, you know, from Nancy Pelosi in Congress, that we saw from the squad, from four women who Trump has explicitly attacked, and they just came right out and called him a racist and, and said yeah. and talked back to him, which is frankly what Michael Dukakis should have done to George Herbert Walker Bush back in the day, you know, back in, uh, what was it? in uh, 88. 88, thank you, but failed to. Democrats have been playing nice with these guys forever. And, uh, you know, thank God they're taking the gloves off. It took Trump to make that happen. Is it too late? I, that's what I, what I wonder, whether it's, whether it's too late. I mean, it's obviously not, not too little. I mean, with, uh, with, with people like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and, and the rest of the squad, uh, you know, they're definitely not taking this lightly at all. And they're definitely taking off the the gloves and, and using any means necessary to uh, to push back. But early on, there but, was opposition to Orban in Hungary. There was opposition to Duterte in the Philippines. There was opposition to Erdogan in Turkey. There was opposition to Mussolini in Italy. And all that opposition eventually evaporated. I am very concerned yeah. about this. How are you?
Howard in Los Angeles. Hey, Howard, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I just wanted to follow up from what a couple of your callers have said. Um, and that has to do with the right-wing hate radio's theory that there's uh, no such thing as white privilege. Right. And the, the easy proof to see that there is, is um, you know, no white parents have had to have the talk with their children. But every African-American parents did. Yep. You know, the, the, the talk of, you know, when you get pulled over by the police, you here's, have to. Here's what you do not to get eat. shot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I'd say, like, you know, like I, I, for me, the, 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 the revelation, and I didn't really understand this until I was in at least in my 50s and maybe even my early 60s. The big revelation of white privilege to me and for me personally, the, the biggest part mm -hmm. of my own experience of white privilege is that I don't have to think about race. When I'm walking down the street, I don't have to worry that somebody's going to attack me because of my race. When I'm driving, I don't have to worry that the police are going to kill me because of my race. When I go into a store, mm -hmm. I don't have to worry that I'm going to be followed around because of my race. When I go to a restaurant, I don't have to worry that I'm going to get seated in a crappy part of the restaurant because of my race. Um, you know, when I, it, yeah, I could I could continue, right? I mean, you know, through all of life's experiences, um, people of color in this country. Uh, are have to be conscious of race every single day, every probably every single hour of every single day, and and I don't. White people don't, and 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 I think that that you know I I can't speak from a black person's perspective or a Hispanic person or Asian person's perspective, but or Native American person's perspective, but um, it's. Certainly, the science that I've seen on this indicates that having to be continually on your guard because of your race actually produces what would broadly be considered post-traumatic stress disorder for people. Uh, you know, it's, it's a traumatizing experience, and it's a traumatizing experience literally from the time, you, you know, you're, you're a year old or two years old when you start, as a child, interacting with other people socially. And, Chronic. And, yeah, and... and, and if you look at it in that context, you see that white privilege isn't just, you know, something that, you know, helps white people get a better education or, or you know, amass more wealth or get better jobs or things like that, you know, where, where white privilege is, you know, using essentially the racist infrastructure and not, you know, trying to challenge it. But it, it, is, it, is, it is an insidious form of continual assault on people who are not white. And it's done, and, and white people who don't know this, don't point this out, or, or don't understand it, are part of that assault. And, uh, you know, it just, it just needs to be said. Howard, i got to move along, but thank you for the call. It's, it, that was, that's a good point. Charles in Miami. Hey, Charles, what's up? Hey, um, I was calling about the guy, the, the guy who had the daughter in the Air Force. Yeah. And um, uh, I sort of wanted to answer his question, but to your last caller, um, I, I think, um, I guess in my twenties, yes, I would always think about going out as a black male and dealing with the police, you know, mm -hmm. but I think after I've had kids, I don't know how to say it, but I've had to transfer that. I don't really worry about me as much as the fear now of my kids. And, and that's an everyday thought, right. you know, I have a son that's in the military. You know, I have other I have other family members in the military as well, and I have kids out here go to college. But you know, I, I worry constantly. I mean, sometimes the phone will ring, 
nine, ten o'clock at night, and I'm just still work. So, you know, that that's what you deal with as an, you know, even as an African American in this society. But yeah. I think what I called today was, you know, dealing with Mitch McConnell over the years. I, I'm just sick. I don't, I don't know how to say it, but I'm just really sick and fed up with this man already. We have to take control of the Senate. Yeah. He has he has destroyed our lives as progressives, as Democrats in this country. I don't care what color you are. This man and his and, and his um his agenda, and, and, and I think what, what pissed me off with him saying, okay, well they don't have to relitigate um, what the House didn't do as far as bringing witnesses, and this is not the body for this. Then what, what's he there for? What's the Senate there for? We want to find the truth. And one of the main questions that we need to ask is, what happened to the call? We don't want, and we want to hear the call. I don't want a transcript. I don't need them to give me anything that's written on paper. I want to hear the call. There's some type of way that we can hear the call as Americans. You can take out take out all the classified information. But we need to hear the call. Yeah, produce the tape. Well, and in the transcript, I mean, that's that's only an eight-minute transcript of a 21-minute phone call, by the way, Charles. Right. So So, something uh, is missing. We would would get the tone of the call as well, you know, if we would just get the call. We're not asking for it. And as progressives, the other lady that called, the African-American lady, yeah, she's right on it. Um, You know, these people just don't care. And... And one more point that I wanted to make, mm-hmm. it's not that these Republicans and these racists and these conservatives believe in Trump that he's innocent. Their, their, their thing is, prove it. Go ahead and prove that he did this. And I just think that is so un-American, that is so unfair. And, that, you know, that they don't care anything about the Constitution. They'll throw it up in your face as something that they abide by. Oh, I walk around with a, with a, with a copy of the Constitution in my pocket. That was doing the, the Obama administration. But I think all of this is because you had a black man after, after Martin Luther King, you finally had a black man become president. And they are willing to turn this country inside out. They're willing to, to sell this country out just to keep the power. And, I just, you know, we, we just got to be truthful with ourselves. It's not that I'm going to give them the, 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 the benefit of the doubt and say that they don't know it or they believe it. No. They know that that Trump is guilty as hell, but we are dealing with people in this society now that just say prove it. Yeah, we well, what, what they're really doing, Charles, is they're they're participating uh, with Trump in a massive cover Amen. up of of a of a crime, uh, you know, a crime against democracy. It, it is a cover up. Lee in Akakik, Maryland. Am I saying that rightly? Yeah, yes, right. Akakik is correct. Tom, uh, first I want to thank you for everything you've done, and you know you're a great host. I mean, I love listening to your show. Thank you. Um, as a, I'm a 55 year old African American, and a um, couple of things. Uh, I, when you mentioned about uh, we should uh, suffering from post traumatic stress syndrome, I always talk to my friends and say this should this should definitely be some sort of mental health services available to the to the African Americans in America because of. Uh, what we go through. I mean, I had that talk with my mom when I first got my license at 16. Um, and I told her at the time, I thought she was, you know, that those were back in those days and that, you know, times were different. And um, I was 16 I had a car and my first time driving my car, I got pulled over and it was like a regular occurrence. And now, as a, even as a 55-year-old man, I still feel some sort of um, 
stress between, you know, uh, driving the car, what can happen now, things are being actually uh, recorded when things have always been happening to to African-Americans, but never really got the, the the publicity and attention that is that is getting now because of, you know, when has cameras and right. it's being, you know, across across the world. Also, too, you know, one thing, my, I take my daughter to school up in uh, upstate uh, um, New York and up in, up in Pennsylvania. Man, and it's, it's, we, we go, I go past one of, the, one of the trashiest trailer parks in the world, and there's a huge sign that says, Trump, make America great again. And I just call to myself, I say, well, I mean, how can, you know, what the heck is going on in America when you're probably some of the poorest of the poor, but you're going to uh, idolize somebody who could care less about you? I just don't understand, Tom. Yeah. Well, Franklin Roosevelt said that poverty is the stuff that dictatorship is made of. And, uh, you know, it's absolutely the case. And I, and I think that when we finally have a conversation about reparations, um, PD, PTSD therapy or help or, you know, as you said, you know, uh, mental health services. Well, you know, Bernie's been arguing for years that mental health services should be part of, uh, you know, a national health care system. Uh, should be free to everyone, but certainly to, to people who have experienced what's now, you know, multi-generational abuse at the hands of a system. And, you know, 400 years of multi-generational abuse and violence, absolute violence. So, yeah, I'm with you, Lee. Uh, do you, do you, uh, you want to add anything to that? We just got about 35, 40 seconds here. Uh, just, just, uh, you know, even when I, I work, if you you know. Yeah, yeah. Your phone is breaking up too, Lee. Lee, thanks a lot for the call. I, I, yeah, this is, it's just, it's just crazy that as a nation, we can't provide health care. We can't provide mental health services. It's crazy that as a nation, we tolerate um, racist institutions or racism within our institutions. It's crazy that as a as a country we are not more awake to all this. And 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 again, I think that between the Obama presidency and all the faux outrage over Fox News about absolutely everything our first black president did. Frank in Thompson Falls, Montana. Hey, Frank, you're on the air. Yeah, I was just wondering, how does a person temper their rage against the Trump administration and carry on a productive life? I mean, it's getting to the point of being ridiculous. And I, you know, write poetry, ride my motorcycle, try to alienate myself from the Trumpsters. But living in the middle of Trump land, it's impossible. Yeah. Plus, I was kind of curious on why there aren't more people like the people in Hong Kong, you know, protesting in the streets. Here in the United States. Correct. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> and, and, you know, you know, protesting the Trump administration. It's like we've got, frankly, I think what a lot of it was that we all thought that the Mueller report was going to take down Trump. You know, that was going to be the end of it. But obviously it didn't. Bill Barr got in there and, Frank, thank you for the call. Bill Barr got in there and said, oh, you know, nothing to see here. Donald Trump is fine. There was no collusion. There's no, you know. And, you know, of course, Bill Barr, our attorney general, lied to us. <laughs> but what can you do? I think that the day may come, and I think it will come with an economic downturn, frankly. So, you know, we'll see where this goes. Uh, Nate made a point to me a little bit earlier, apropos our, some of our conversations on race. I was saying PTSD, and P is post, and it's an ongoing trauma for people of color in this country. So probably a more accurate characterization would be TSD, traumatic stress disorder or syndrome or something like that. 
and I think you said it was Ward Churchill yeah. who first pointed that out. Thank you, Nate. Steve in Atlanta, speaking, speaking of which, says you wanted to talk about race. Steve, what's on your mind? Man, I love you. Speak up for democracy. It's a wonder you haven't been killed, and I appreciate your courage. Yeah. Now, what I was going to say seriously is that uh, Trump, when he said that he called those players because just because they took a knee in protest because of injustices in the NFL, he called them a son of a bitch. Yeah. Just let that resonate with you, America, calling somebody a son. And so we as black men took that, uh, you know, personally, uh, you know, I, even just for that and that alone, uh, one could not vote for him. And, and, I, and I cannot understand how, why a few of these uh, black people are standing around as just showcasing with him. But uh, I just think uh, that was the worst thing for my well, a lot of things from my perspective uh, that he had done. Now, last thing, quite quickly, is that I was talking to a, a friend of mine, and by the way, we do talk about post-traumatic slave syndrome in, in mm -hmm. our groups, and I can talk about slave uh, racism all day. But I, I want I to, he calls himself, I'm a football player, and I know street life too, and academics, but the point is he come across like he's so tough and all of this, but he's just really a weak woman wanted to just be in the ring with him for a minute because if you're not guilty, you don't want, want to answer no questions, don't let nobody come and testify. I mean, all of those are just weakling, I want to say pussy stuff, but you know what I mean. It's just really crazy. Yeah, so for him, yeah I'd, I'd, rather, I'd rather we didn't he use just, that. He's not really... Steve. He's not as tough as he tried to be. Yeah, you know? I, I, I get it, Steve, and I, I'd rather we didn't use that word on the air. I don't think we need to bleep it, but I, you know, it's just, uh, uh, you know, please let's keep it keep it family friendly here. I think you're right, and I think that a lot of Trump's bullying and blustering right now is coming out of a fundamental weakness and a fundamental insecurity. And every single time that the Republicans, like Mitch McConnell, say they don't want witnesses, the Democrats need to be saying, "What are you trying to hide? What's what are you trying to cover up?" Steve, thanks for the call, and and uh, you know I, I I like that uh, PTS, you know, changing stress to slavery syndrome. Fascinating. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back. So in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So please get out there, get active, tag your hit. See you soon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.